Hello, and welcome to Talking Tech, a podcast from the Legal Services Board that looks at the regulatory implications of new technologies for the legal services sector. I'm David Fowlis, a regulatory policy manager at the Legal Services Board. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Weiner of Swansea University's Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship in Law. And we'll be talking about what the increased use of technology to deliver legal services means for education and the approaches legal regulators can take to ensure that legal education provides lawyers with the skills and knowledge they need to use technology effectively and ethically. Adam, welcome to the podcast. And if you'd just like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your work on technology in law and education. Hi, Dave. Thanks a lot for uh, bringing me into this project and uh, all the discussions we've had about this. So I am an associate professor of law and computer science at Swansea University. And what that means in practice is that part of my position is in the School of Law and part of my position is in computer science. I primarily have a background in linguistics and computer science, although all of the work that I've been doing the last almost 20 years now has been in artificial intelligence and law that is computer science techniques Mm -hmm. applied to legal information. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So just to we start with a bit of background on what the current state of legal technology education mm-hmm. is. So what sort of education and training about technology and how you could use it to deliver legal services is actually available? And who is it available to? Is it just students or and is it just limited to higher education institutions at the moment? Mm-hmm. Right. So there are a variety of programs in legal tech in the UK, in Europe, uh, in the United States. There's developments in, for instance, Singapore. It's still rather limited in scope. Um, There are just a few number of law schools who are offering a program, and those are, you know, usually like a master's program or something like that. I'm not aware of substantive programs at the undergraduate level that really incorporate a lot of legal tech, but there's quite a strong difference between the programs that are offering law applied to technology, Mm -hmm. which is, for instance, how do you take intellectual property law and apply that to software. This is a topic that's been around for really Mm -hmm. quite a long time, right? So there's quite a lot of uh, law schools that offer that and have offered that. What's less is technology applied to the law, which is more like, you know, how do you do programming and what's computational thinking and what do you do about visualization? There are very few programs like that. Swansea University has one. Stanford has some things going on. Uh, Suffolk University in the United Mm -hmm. States has some. And then there are also some summer schools here and there that are offering kinds of programs. And it's sort of gradually taking off. A good listing, if anybody's looking for this, is Artificial Lawyer. Yes. He's got a page that's got a listing of who's offering what. Mm-hmm. And that's worth a scan because you can both see where things are and really kind of the limitations. I do know that uh, some law firms like Linklater's are yeah. just starting to develop legal tech training. And I know that because I was participating in their okay. development. There's not a lot going on. The point being that, as far as I understand it, law firms don't have their own internal training programs about legal tech Right. They're starting to develop these things where they're starting to farm these out to, you know, let's say Swansea University for sure. the summer school or something like that. So there's a little bit going on. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, for instance, for smaller law firms or individual lawyers to access this kind of material. Yeah. From what the education that we, is, is available, is there a sort of general rationale behind it? Or does it tend to be quite piecemeal and perhaps focus on particular technologies that are in the, in the headlines at the moment? So I would rather contrast it between ad hoc and comprehensive 
and flavor of the month, right? Okay. Yeah. So and so the difference between sort of flavor of the month and comprehensive is yeah. take all sorts of specific technology in computer science, all sorts of specific topics and approaches in artificial intelligence, of which there are many, and I'll say this yeah. again, and apply them to legal informatics, right? Uh, that would be comprehensive, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas what tends to happen is really like people say, oh, we've got to talk about blockchain, Bitcoin, distributed ledger. Right. That's a hot topic. It's so important. And I've seen places that do focus a lot on distributed ledger. Mm-hmm. Or, for instance, you could focus a lot on machine learning. Machine learning has been very successful in certain ways. So people naturally sort of gravitate towards these. And sure. there have been a lot of companies coming out and saying, we're doing machine learning. We'll provide you with that service. So yes, there seems to be kind of focused towards these hot button topics. Right. So they don't tend to be uh, as comprehensive as I would think that they should be. Mm-hmm. The kinds of programs that, for instance, I try to encourage and develop are more comprehensive, touching on more topics with more diversity of approaches than you know focusing on the hot topics. I think that there's an important argument to be made for at least trying to approach things comprehensively rather than narrowly focused. And the reason there is to avoid disappointment in terms of expectations. Okay. Because I think people in the AI community like me, we don't want to have what's called the AI winter come back. That is very huge expectations about what AI is going to do mm-hmm. and then dramatic fall off and, and disappointment because you didn't deliver. Right. If we talk more in terms of a comprehensive kind of distributed approach, incremental, gradual over time, mm-hmm. that disappointment will be held off. For instance, people are already saying distributed ledger, Bitcoin, what's it done for me today? Or machine learning, it's going to take away my jobs or it can't do this or it can't do that. And why should we spend on AI? Right. Yeah. So comprehensive, I think, is something worth emphasizing. Okay. Do you think that the fact there is this, this sort of inconsistent nature of technology education so far, is that really down to just the newness of the topic? Is it, is it just the fact this is new territory and educators haven't quite got their heads around it yet? Or is it more down to the fact that maybe legal regulators haven't said, okay, these are things that we want our lawyers to know about and you educators need to start working on this and and educating people about these issues. It's not so much a matter to me about whether it's inconsistent, but whether it's, again, this kind of comprehensive versus hot topics kind of thing. I think it does have a lot to do with the newness for everybody Mm -hmm. because there's the newness for the AI community itself. Oh, legal informatics. This is a new topic. I am in a computer science department and to get my colleagues engaged with legal topics and legal areas is really very, very fresh for them. I'm also in a law school. Yes. To get my law school colleagues and legal practitioners engaged in technology, mm-hmm. also very, very new to them, very okay. difficult. To, but a lot of this is a kind of a cultural disposition, right. right? We're talking about two very, very different kinds of communities, different behaviors, agendas, mm-hmm. etc. trying to sort of mesh what they're trying to do. And Because it's new, that makes it very difficult to say, well, what are we supposed to be teaching? And for the regulators, this is exactly where the problem is for them, right? They're sitting in the middle of this saying, oh, there's all this activity going on. Yes. And what's the best way for us to kind of make headway? And I think in part, you know, part of our discussion and the paper is this kind of proposal of what should be done. And I, I started to reflect on this and thinking... You know, this is very much kind of a regulatory, a regulator's question. Mm. Please tell us what should be done. Whereas me as a computer scientist yes. have this much more experimental, 
developmental point of view, trying yeah. to find out what the problems are mm. in the first instance. Right. And from that, you make the solutions. So in a sense, it's kind of learning each other's language, yes. how to set the agendas, and to some extent, you know, advice to the regulators right. is let's start exploring the domain mm -hmm. and get familiar with what's going on, and from that will emerge the kind of norms that you want to propagate, right. rather than we've got to do this immediately and let's make the norms right away. So I, I think it's not so much inconsistent as it is the newness, yeah. it's the dramatic difference between the communities and the way they understand things. So if you're a legal educator, what, what are the challenges that you're facing if you're going to start teaching the next generation or the current generation of lawyers about technology, what should you be looking at trying to teach them and, and what, are, what are the difficulties in doing that? It's easier for me to just draw on the experience yeah. that I've had in you know, teaching AI and law topics, mm -hmm. both at Swansea and some other places. Sure. So the courses that I've been doing, we really start with law school students okay. and they may never have done anything with a computer before mm -hmm. and they may never have looked at formal logic before and they may never have looked at let's say case-based reasoning, systematically, right. these kinds of things. So you have to introduce people to a certain kind of analytic thinking. Mm -hmm. And the way that I've come to look at this more is what we're calling computational thinking, okay. which is not even touching the machine yet. Right? Right. People oftentimes conflate computational thinking and computer science with that box on your desktop. Yeah. That's actually not the most relevant thing. So try to introduce them to computational thinking, which is a way of thinking kind of analytically about problems. You can do this anywhere mm -hmm. in the sciences, but it's taking a large problem, decomposing it into yes. its parts, the relationships between the parts, mm -hmm. the processes that you want to apply to those parts, right. going from where you're starting from to where you'd like to end up with, mm -hmm. where there might be a lot of intermediate steps. You might call that algorithmic thinking, you might call that computational thinking, Another kind of area is a different disposition towards problem solving and problem exploration, which is very common in computer science and I think is a bit different in law. You really have to explore problems in a rather different way, mm. a different systematic way, and you have to be more available to taking risks okay. and more available to taking on, to admitting failure. Okay. One of the things in reviewing, you know, what yeah. is it like to be a computer scientist? is you really fail a lot All right. and you have to develop a, a thick skin mm -hmm. to that because you can be sure some bug arises and you got to figure it out. It's not quite the way that people in law school think about things. No. Right? For instance, very often when I have conversations with lawyers or law school colleagues, it runs along the lines of, yeah, but this problem is so complicated in this way and that way, and because that's interesting and fascinating with all the variations, right? Right. A lot of times when you're doing science or you're doing computer science, you kind of want to get to uh, the common elements, things that occur most often, and kind of put aside for a certain amount of time some of those deviations from the normative course of things, okay. right? Let's just get to the core of the behavior and then deal with the exceptions. Maybe we won't deal with the exceptions at all. Maybe we just have to leave right. those aside, right? Whereas to a lawyer, that's really yeah, fascinating. Because you're trying to encompass all the exceptions. You you're trying to, to write something that's watertight a lot of the time. Oh, watertight, watertight, exactly. Yeah. You know? and, and you may do this, you're doing this as a legislator, but you're also doing this as a practicing lawyer, developing a case where all the alternatives. Writing a contract. That kind writing of thing. a contract. Yeah. Well, you know, we don't really do that when we do that in computer science. Right. So there are a lot of ways in which, so people in law are oftentimes very anxious when talking about how to solve a problem with, yeah, but you're going to make it too rigid. Right? Okay. And 
Yeah, I mean, this is an issue in computer science is mm -hmm. that you need to have this kind of decomposition to its parts and relations and step-by-step -step yeah. and solutions. And there are things that you have to sort of leave aside mm. because we need the thing to function. Yeah. And so that becomes a choice to leave aside what to work on and incorporate only certain kinds of core things. Do, do you think that's why to some extent we've seen legal technology develop in some areas more rapidly than others? So Absolutely. Perhaps you've got things like document analysis software, which has kind of come on a lot and a lot of, you've, perhaps it's more of, you've had structured kind of problem solving methodology you've spoken about yeah. is more applicable there yeah. than it might be to say basically like case determination software where you'd feed in a load of you know information about how judges have looked at cases and to try and predict how a case might be resolved. So do you think there are some areas where of law where legal te technology is going to be more easily right. applicable? So I think that there's an interesting discussion that would be worth having a panel about which is about that gradation, because that's what it is. There's no firm cutoff. Mm. But where, what areas and why is technology more applicable now right. than other areas and in which kinds of ways? So just as another example is tax law. Right. We've had tax law software for decades. Okay. Right? It's available to the public. Right? Yeah. They don't think about it that way, but no, that's what but, it is. But right? these things that you can use to, you know, calculate on it and kicks out how much you owe to the, to the revenue. That's, because they wrote the tax law in a very, very specific and clear yes. kind of way. And let me just give you another contrast. The Law Commission has been very interested in automated vehicles. Mm -hmm. And they talk about some of the specific problems that have arisen in the discussions with technology about automated vehicles. Because, for instance, you know, you can have a law that sounds really firm. Mm. 70 miles an hour is the peak rate at such and such. Yes. Can't you just build that as an absolute hard line, right? Hard mm. code that into the vehicle's code. Well, then the law commission says, yeah, but right, there are circumstances mm. in which a police officer or the judge would say there are legitimate reasons yeah. why exceeding the speed limit is fine rushing somebody to the hospital, for yes. instance. There are lots of exceptional circumstances. And furthermore, those circumstances are not firmly listed. <laughs> they cannot be. So there's that gradation. And I think what's, what's interesting to me as researcher, but also as somebody trying to bring technology into the marketplace mm -hmm. and in the hands of, of pro professionals, is to find where those lines are and to define those things. That's part of this kind of requirements engineering phase, yeah. right? which we're really involved in at this point, is what is it that we need to do, for what purposes, for which audiences, that's, what's feasible to do, what can we set aside, and not sort of literally chew off more than we can swallow. Do you think it's that legal education should really should be focusing on specific applications? Or do you think it should be more about general principles and getting lawyers to appreciate perhaps what technologies can and can't do or how technologies can be best used and the limitations of what technologies can do? So I would certainly go for the general principles right. and not teach people very specific proprietary tools, yeah. commercial tools, because the main thing when you're dealing with education is you don't want to lock in people. So you have to teach people, you know, something that they can work with, you know, on an ongoing basis. But you also want to teach people concepts and techniques that are very highly likely to be reusable next year, five years, 10 years down the line, because there's sort of underlying concepts and techniques mm -hmm. Uh, that will just be in place forever, right? Yeah. 
The other thing is that's quite noticeable to me is that when I look around at the legal tech landscape, you know, look at the various companies that I'm aware of and what the technologies are that they offer, these things are not new in the legal tech community. Right. There have been these concepts and these ideas and some rudimentary prototype technologies mm -hmm. around some of these things. They make it work correctly and they distribute it on the web and things like that. So it's really to teach these kind of concepts, things that students can work with, things that uh, faculty members can teach, figuring out exactly what that general set of concepts is. Sure. That's another matter. Yeah. And that's kind of an area where we're trying to take these two very different areas mm. and start to work them together more and more and start to converge on what are the relevant kinds of things to be teaching. So maybe if we had to try and perhaps boil it down a little bit, perhaps when you want to teach a lawyer, when it should, to say, say a lawyer is using a, an AI to reach a potential decision about how to perceive a case right. or, or a legal, right. deal with a, a legal question, and the AI kicks out an answer that seems a bit odd. Right. You know, do you want to make sure that you have lawyers that have the confidence to question the machine? Right. Because obviously there's a danger that you, potentially that people begin to respect the machine almost too much. The, it, it's got access to huge amounts of information potentially. It can, it can run through thousands of scenarios. It can, you know, in a way that a human brain maybe can't. But at the same time, it might produce a result that you go, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense to me as a, as a, as a trained lawyer. Um, do you, do we need to sort of build in a sort of level of confidence with lawyers about technology, but just how to use it, how to use it properly, and to give it its due respect, if you know what I mean, but not the, but not be overwhelmed by it? Or so I would actually go a bit further than that, and this is what I tell my students, which mm -hmm. is that their role is to be critical. So I would like to think about teaching people enough of the fundamental concepts. Mm -hmm where the data comes from, how the data gets processed, how do you extract structured information yeah. from the data, the potential for bias, you know, how it is that tools go from data to you know, some kind of result, and yeah. the potential for you know, providing information in certain kinds of formats that may be misleading. They need to be critical about mm. how they're doing things, because otherwise people will get lulled. Yes, They will still get lulled into, well, it's really making my life a lot easier. And yeah. I, I think that we have to constantly be on guard to mm -hmm. that. And let's remember, it's not really just the machine, right? Sure. The machine is the endpoint of the organization that has produced that. Yes. So really, when we're thinking about maintaining some critical disposition, mm -hmm. so the critical disposition about how did that organization get to provide this piece of software? Right. What were their aims and purposes? Okay. And whose aims and purposes are they really serving? Okay. And are those aligned with mine or the client that I'm serving? Right. And I think that that's going to be more the user's responsibility. Right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think we're in an environment now where we have so many apps, we just use them and we trust that they work as they do. Mm -hmm. Even though there's lots of red flags about yes. the technologies that we currently have, People are still just going along with yeah. this, right? Like location on our phones. Yes. We know where the data is going for this. It's quite astonishing. Mm. And we're all just going along with this uncritically. So I think that that moral is very much in place for mm. legal tech. The potential for abuse is yeah. very significant. That's something that the regulators should be guarding against. Yeah. Because they are kind of protecting the general environment, you know, okay. the, the citizenry against abuse of technologies, of which there, we already know that there can be plenty of these. So if you were to design the, the sort of ideal legal technology training course, what would it consist of? So it's 
a bit of a big question mm -hmm. because I could imagine a variety of different kinds of things, right? Yeah. But this is an active, a topic that I've been actively working on the last bunch of years. And broadly speaking, the idea is to take some aspects of computer science or AI, develop teaching materials using those concepts and techniques that are relevant to law school students. Mm -hmm. Because what's lacking now, here's, let's say, talk about one topic, visualization. So then you have to say, well, what legal content could we work with and, and how do we make it relevant and usable to a law school student? Well, we take a bunch of legal cases, we identify a lot of particular information, the parties, the jurisdictions, mm -hmm. the cases that are cited, etc., the legal principles that are applied. Yeah. And we have our visualization across a large corpus of cases and then say, how would you as a law school student or practicing lawyer use this visualization of this legal information? Well, cases that are all kind of clustered together mm -hmm. or highly close related semantically in terms of content, that may be instructive to help you look at those cases yeah. to see whether your legal issue is being addressed mm -hmm. in the cases that are linked. So that would be an instance of trying to draw together the technique and the concepts from computer science right. with the content of the law mm -hmm. that's then useful for people who want to practice. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they have to learn all of the math and all of the programming for visualization? Eh, not really. They should learn a little bit. It's always interesting for people to get their hands a little bit dirty and mm -hmm. to learn how that these things are very complicated. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be the same as you know a graduate student. So it's it's always a matter of finding some kind of medium Right. between the topic areas and the right kind of content so that it makes sense to mm -hmm. the law school students and they can see that that gets practiced outside. So for instance, there's a lot of work in computer science about logic and reasoning, mm -hmm. knowledge, representation, and reasoning. This is all over the law. I mean, the law is filled with knowledge that yes. has to be represented and reasoned with. But how do you transform legal information into something that a machine can start to process? Well, mm -hmm. some people have to go into that legal material and start to do very fine-grained detailed analysis yeah. to transform it into something that is machine readable and still represents what we understand about the law. Dispute resolution. There's a lot of work that's been done in computer science about argumentation and interactive chatbots, for example, mm -hmm. or dialogue representation for all sorts of different areas. But how do you take all this theory and all of these tools and look at what dispute resolution is or even legal argumentation is in court mm -hmm. and start to analyze that, use that in a course to teach it. You could talk about uh, legal concepts, what's an obligation, what's a permission, right. what's a prohibition, and again, what does that mean in the computer science sense? So when I'm trying to sell these kinds of courses also to my computer science colleagues, yes. we should do visualization or knowledge representation and reasoning or data mining well, we have to work with not just this data, but also with these purposes yes. for this audience. Mm -hmm. And from the lawyer's side or the law school student side or the law faculty side, right, they will have to be taught about you know, how you put data together, analysis of data. The two other areas that I've been proposing is one is this computational thinking. We just spoke about that. Another one is really to understand what's called the software engineering development cycle. Okay? Okay. It's what every software engineer learns when they learn about developing 
a piece of software, mm -hmm. right? These things don't happen by hacking. This, those days are long gone. The way it's done, there's a whole methodology. You, you identify what the problem is. You say, okay, how do we take this problem into its parts? And what is it that you as the client, as the user, want to achieve? Right. How do you want it to look and feel? Given this data in, what's that data coming out, etc. Mm -hmm. right? That's requirements engineering. Once you kind of figured out what you want to get, then you do a design. And you have to have a design about this whole mm -hmm. thing before you go into actually doing the programming. You don't ever program anymore without a roadmap that tries okay. to spell it out as much as possible. You, want, you, need to, you know where you're trying to get to at the you end. You need to know. At the and end. you've got a pretty good idea of how that's going to go. And how you go. Otherwise, you will get lost and you'll end up with a lot of junk code, which we still see a lot of. Yes. Then there's the actual programming. Mm -hmm. And then there's another phase of testing and evaluating right. Does this tool that you've built, given this design, given those requirements, does this tool what do what the user, the mm -hmm. expert that you consulted in the design, do what they want it to do, right? Yeah. And then how do you maintain it? So one of the things that I talk a lot about with students is there's a place for you in the software development cycle. Right. You don't have to be the programmer. You can be the legal knowledge expert. Okay. Interacting with the software engineer mm -hmm. who will interview you and say, what is it that you want? How is it that you want it? And you help them. You're part of a team. Then once you've got the requirements and you've got the design, you hand it over, they build some programming, right? And they come back to you and say, here's my prototype. Is it doing what you think it should do? Mm -hmm. And you get to be the user and critique the hell out of it. And then you give feedback. One of the things that's very useful about seeing this cycle is the need for scope. If you're talking about a cultural difference between yeah. computer scientists and people in law, computer scientists are always trying to scope down the problem. Look at it as an you know, architect for building a building right. and consulting the client. What the architect wants at the end of the consultation process is the design for the building. Yes. They don't want the client coming back and say, oh, I'd really like an extra room over there. So, you know, we need to scope things, and that's part of this kind of systematic okay. way of thinking. There's the thing about the computational thinking. Yeah. There's the thing about how do you approach uh, the methodology mm. to development. And I think all of those things can and should be done. One thing there is, is, around, is around ethics and the sort of concerns that lawyers often have around um, making sure they're acting, they're acting ethically, obviously, as well as effectively on behalf of their clients. How does that fit in in what, in what you talked about in terms of um, that relationship between a lawyer and, say, a computer scientist and right. interacting with each other, perhaps, in the right. design of legal technology application? Absolutely. So the last two years, yeah. there's been a lot of discussion about regulating AI mm. or responsible AI or these kinds of ideas. You know, there's one in, in the paper I discuss one particular proposal mm -hmm. that's based on kind of a global discussion about what is responsible AI. Yeah. And also the UK government is very interested in this topic, right? Mm. What is it that they should do in order to see that AI doesn't get out of hand and yeah. does what it's supposed to do and doesn't introduce bias? We've all heard the stories about face recognition, yes. what's happening with your health records, what's happening, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. We all know this is going on. So what's happened fairly recently is that in computer science itself, they're very concerned with being seen to train computer science students in this mm -hmm. notion of what's responsible AI. Okay. So they need to know, at least as a matter of concern, what is it to be ethical 
what kinds of properties should they build into their software, whether right. it's transparency or explainability. Yeah. It's a huge concern about what's called explainable AI yeah. because we have all sorts of machine learning tools that are doing automated classification and we don't really understand actually technically why. For the law school students, I think exactly the same issues hold and they have to be told very much the same kinds of things. So now mm. I have a lecture, for instance, on responsible AI to give both the computer science students right. and the law school students to say, here are some of the principles that people are talking about. What is it to be ethical? They talk about you know, not introducing bias into the data, mm -hmm. to make sure that your systems are transparent yeah. and explainable. Uh, what's the value of open data and open source software mm -hmm. in that sense, because it's accessible to you know, examination and these sure. kinds of things. So let's look at this from the regulator standpoint. If we know what we'd like legal technology education to cover and what lawyers are going to need to know, then how do the regulators ensure that's embedded into legal education? In the paper, and there are several propositions, yeah. right? And so the question there is, how do these propositions get activated yeah. from the regulator's point of view, right? So for example, there's this point about standards and openness of legal information, mm -hmm. right? So open access to data and open legal processes and things like that. And I'm specifically talking about for the purposes of education, okay. right? This is not intended for an industry standard, but for right. the purposes of legal education. What that means for the regulators is that they have to promote actively open data and open source software. What does okay. that mean? That means either they get on board with some of the open data platforms, because this is this issue of open data is a very lively issue in many domains. So they can support and engage with that. Uh, open source software, they can engage with that. And again, there are organizations that are very you know, involved with uh, open source software yeah. or open source standards. The regulators could actively engage in standards construction, convening groups of people, interested parties, to have standards for their particular subsections, right, okay. involving their members. They could also, for instance, about open data, they could say, uh, we don't want all of your data. We don't want your client list and yeah. all of your internal processes. We're not yes. asking for that. We could ask legitimately for a sample, make a contribution for the greater good, yeah. for the future of legal practice, mm -hmm. right, that is uh, anonymized. Right. We don't want to know your personal business, but we want to know some of the shape about the stuff that you've got going yeah. on. Give us the narrative about the legal processes within your company. Why? Well, one argument there is, do you really think that if there are 100 companies more or less in the same, let's say, property industry, right? Yeah. Do you really think that they're all doing everything radically differently? Probably not. Mm. Probably there's a lot that's shared in common, right? So let's just open that up, right? Keep something that's really proprietary and different to yourself. But for the common processes, let's try to make something that actually is the common good. Okay. And the same thing for software development. There's no reason not to have you know, some encouragement towards you know, common development of tools that are you know, useful to their particular communities. The advantage for the regulators in doing that is that they know who they're working with. Mm -hmm. They know all their subsectors because it's not going to be one tool for the whole thing no. about responsible AI. The regulators could say this, these are the values that are important to us and they could do a consultation among their members. Yeah. 
but they could take an active role in, in those consultations and in promoting those kinds of values and those kinds of principles in the legal community rather than having it forced from the top down with, right. by the government. Right? Yeah. The government says anything that involves this kind of technology must adhere to these following principles. Mm. Other kinds of things, you know, are we just talked about hybrid courses and programs in law and, and computer science. And that's again, uh, you know, what regulators could do is, you know, convening panels. Mm. You know, engaging me with me is very nice and that's very interesting. But they could also take the role, take the lead of, you know, engaging panels mm. of computer scientists across the spectrum, right? For the integration of legal services and government legal services, we hadn't talked much about mm. that. But the government is increasingly driving towards its own technologies to serve yeah. to serve government services mm -hmm. to the public and to itself by the way yeah. right it's also very interested in providing its own data about the public and public services mm -hmm. and the functioning of government to either other organizations legal professionals or the citizenry yeah Right. And they're also very interested in responsible AI. Mm. And the judiciary is also, as we know from yes. their billion pound investment, interested in technological development. Yeah. They're not quite in the AI space, but they're no. moving in that direction. So these very large scale organizations, the large scale organizations, mm. right, are inevitably going to have an impact on the regulators, right. as well as the law firms and the lawyers, because all the legal information that they're already working with interfaces with the government and the judiciary. Right. So they could play an active role in shaping what those technologies are and how that data is made available okay. rather than simply being the recipients yeah. of, of the structures of yeah, things. Because I mean, one thing we've picked up um, and work we've sort of been doing is that you have the legal profession on the one hand and you have medical and you have financial and then you have general business. and. In the past, probably legal regulations been allowed, has been a silo, and it's been self-contained to some extent, yeah. and medical regulations has been self-contained yeah. to some extent, and so on. But now you have a technology, like, like AI, that sits, can sit above all this, can have a general application outside of the professions, might be applied in each profession, might, each profession might have slightly different concerns about it, and then how it and has particular needs or particular um, aspects of its profession that, where it says, Say in law, we may be particularly concerned about explicability. Right. We might be more concerned about it than, for example, medicine. Just for right. argument's sake, because right. medicine may just care that it works. And um, well, we know we have cases of this, yeah. you know, uh, breast cancer detection. Yeah. It's it, machine learning is able to do a much better job. Yeah. Do you, does anybody really care? They just want it detected. They just want it to work. Yeah. They just want it to work, which is great. Whereas for for us, perhaps in, in law, you may be more concerned that you understand why, but because so then you can then use that to make further decisions and absolutely. And but let me, you, can I just underscore sure. this? I think that actually in law, it's more necessary than almost any other area. And mm. I make this argument a lot because there's no such thing as making a decision on a case that may go on appeal without knowing what's the basis of the appeal. Yeah. <laughs> and for that, you need to have detailed knowledge mm. of the case that's going on appeal, right? So that's just an instance, but I think for law, it's important. So if we just maybe just bring it back and sum up a little bit here. Mm -hmm. So if we're a regulator, we're looking at what sort of legal education courses we want to see for about technology, what we want our new lawyers and our current lawyers to, to know, what, what are the things that maybe the three, four, five, the things that we really want to see from, from a legal education course and that we should be making sure is there? Well, so I would put this rather 
fairly high level points, sure. right? Because it would be if I said, well, you know, you need to do this topic in machine yeah. learning and that topic in knowledge representation. I think that that actually would not serve right. any point. It's kind of going through the computer science topics and to figure out what's enough knowledge from that domain mm -hmm. that is acquirable in the course of legal education. So the scale and scope of things is really going to have to be relativized. You have to know something about the law and something about computer science. So one thing is to you know f start to figure out what's the scope of things in computer science. Mm -hmm. The other thing is to figure out what are the topic areas, what are the good examples to to work on. And for that, you know, people, well, frankly, like me and my mm -hmm. colleagues who are interested in this interdisciplinary area, have to you know have the opportunity and to work across those fields so that you get the right level of mix. Another thing is this matter of having open source data and open source tools to work with mm. because we need to work in an unrestricted manner, both for the, the sake of the, the educators and for the sake of the students. Mm. And the more realistic the data is, and the more I know from this as, a, as an educator about the problems that lawyers have and how they look at the data, the more I can make that course relevant to the law. If there's a big problem for me, the last 20 years, it's been, where's the data? What do you really think about the data? And will you help me structure the data in a way that then I can process it or teach it or something like mm. that? There's a certain amount of uh, people in the legal community making themselves more available okay. to participating in the development of legal technology education. Right. I think that would be very important. I think that the regulators could encourage people. Mm. This is something that's going to be rather important to be moving the whole legal tech agenda forward. Right. And I think the people who participate in that process will get some things out of it mm. as well. I think the, the critical disposition towards the application of technology to the law, I think that really needs to be encouraged and maintained. Okay. But that also takes a certain amount of you know, education and knowledge about what is the technology, how does it work, mm. what does it mean to us. I think that going forward is going to be kept in mind. The, this disposition of just being enthusiastically and accepting, oh, machine learning, wonderful, Yes, that has to stop. It's right. not actually helpful to anybody, right? Because people will just talk about it in a way that's not appropriate. Yeah. For me, the, the longevity of this project is much more important than who's going to be doing what in the next one or two years. And I think also the regulators need to be looking for the long course of this. Yeah. It is going to happen. It's really an inevitable just development. So uh, making some longer term plans and not just having knee jerk close to, you know, time reaction is helpful. Do you, can you think of a way that where are larger lessons we can you can learn from, say, medicine or the other um, sectors that legal that legal regulators could start applying. Or well, let's look at this issue though again about the cultural differences, yeah. because I think that's kind of the ground of, of where the issue arises about this. Hmm. You know, law starts out being prescriptive, right? By nature, mm -hmm. sciences and even mathematics they're not prescriptive. They're, they're either highly empirical or they're very theoretical. Mm. They're very data-driven, you know, there's a whole scientific method. Actually, the scientific method of developing a study and understanding some phenomena is very much like the software engineering yeah, side, right? Yeah. So I think that there needs to be some kind of 
self-searching mm. about those kinds of cultural dispositions and the extent to which those cultural dispositions are compatible with the current developments in legal tech. Another aspect of this cultural difference is lawyers are trained to argue in a certain style with certain goals. That style of argumentation, those goals and those methods are very, very different from what goes on in any of the sciences or in computer science, right? So, so you almost need, you need to teach lawyers, you need to teach lawyers to think a bit differently. And even if you need, even if you need to think as a lawyer in certain situations, you'll need to understand how other people, computer scientists and people developing software applications think. Yes. Partly yes. civil lawyers can interact with them and get what they need Partly out of so it. so that they can do that, they can get what they need out and, of it. Exactly. And, and understand how they're using the technology, how they use the technologies right. and, and properly. Yes, yeah. how they use the technology properly. And also, for me as a researcher, part of what's exciting about what's going on now is the opportunity to kind of apply the scientific method to the law itself. There's the beginning of an opportunity to explore the law and understand the law in a way that's different from what we've often had, which is this, somebody made the law and that's the way that it is. It may not really be. So I think that that kind of, you know, beginnings of exploration mm -hmm. is quite, has quite interesting opportunities to it. So Adam, thank you for this. It's been a really good discussion. It's covered a lot of ground. Is there any one message that you'd like to get across to legal services regulators and about technology education for lawyers? There's a tremendous opportunity. We're at the beginning of uh, exploring what can be done and how it can be taught and what tools will be on offer. Mm -hmm. There are areas in the sciences uh, or in computer science itself where things were just getting going and then they started to blow up, let's say, bioinformatics. Right. Who knew that biology and computer science would be put together and then we could find you know, new cures for a virus by applying these automated techniques? Legal tech is really at the very beginning of that kind of growth phase where there's a lot of opportunities, a tremendous amount of diversity, mm. you know, some ambiguity and some concerns about who's going to get what. But from my point of view, as somebody who does research and development and teaching, this is very exciting. And people should engage with this and not be concerned about what they have to lose. They really have only things to gain. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.